Well, you know what happens when you go to your host's place and she gives you some food that uh, you really don't want to eat. But you know the polite way of refusing, don't you? You control your facial expression. <laughs> and you say, maybe later, like when Jesus returns, but maybe later. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Haggai says this, These people say the time has not yet come, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They really didn't want it. They had other priorities, other things on their mind, other concerns that were more pressing. Chapter 1, verse 4, they rather renovate their own houses with panel and, and rich wood. Verse 9, they were busy, busy with their own house rather than God's house. God's house? Maybe later. This is the problem facing God's prophet Haggai as he faced God's own people, the Israelites. They weren't saying an outright no to God. They weren't putting God first either, but they were just too busy with their own stuff, their own life, their own lifestyle, their own panelled homes. I wonder if sometimes uh, we are a bit like that. I wonder if Haggai's problem could be the problem that Andrew may have in his congregation. Smack two, of course. But the book of Haggai actually poses for us another problem, a deeper problem, for us as evangelical Bible-believing Christians. I wonder if you picked it up as it was read beautifully for us. Haggai's message seems to be that if you put God first, then you get blessed. That's the message all the way through, isn't it? Let's come to a quick tour of Haggai. In uh, chapter 1, verse 5 to 6, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, so you're not warm. Uh, you weren't a wages, but you just put them into a bag of holes. You think, because you haven't put God first, therefore everything you've done, it's, it's come to nothing. And, uh, you put all your money in the shares and the whole stock market goes down. It's because you're not putting God first, you see. That is why it's gone so badly for you. Pick up again in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to so little. And when you brought it home, I, God says, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You have not put God first. And that's precisely why things have not gone well with you. Now, he's one of the great, um, very unique events in the Old Testament. That is, the people of God listen to God and actually repent. It's amazing. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 12 there, you see, they actually listen and they turn around and they start building. But after a month or so, they, they start rebuilding and all the rest. But when they get to chapter 2, verse 3... When they see this new temple they have rebuilt, it's still not much. Not much compared to Solomon's temple, the first temple. So you see in chapter 2 and verse 3, 
Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, Solomon's glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? But look, but look, chapter 2, verse 4 to 7. Basically saying, look, never mind that, you know. It'll get better. God will come and actually make it better. He will bring the greatness back again. He'll bring the gold. In fact, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, the gold, the silver belongs to the Lord and he'll bring it out of all the nations and he'll make this temple with a lot more beauty and glory. The God is on your side will triumph, you see. And chapter 2, verse 10 to 19, again, it remembers the people's sin when they didn't put God first. They neglected God's house. And how did you fare, verse 16? No good. For now, now that you've begun to rebuild, verse 18, you haven't seen too much success yet, not much agricultural yield, but just remember it takes a few months for the crops to grow. And so chapter 2, verse 19, halfway through, from this day on, I will bless you. See, now you're going to put God first, just wait. God will come from this day on, you'll get the blessings from God. See how this whole book gives us, as evangelicals, big problems, doesn't it? Put God first and you get material blessing. Put God first, you get physical blessing. God says, I am with you. God will give you wealth and success. From this day on, I will bless you. A couple of years ago, there's a book uh, written by a guy called Bruce Wilkinson called The Prayer of Jabez. I'm sure it made its rounds around here in Malaysia. And in this uh, book, you meant to say a certain prayer from the Old Testament, The Prayer of Jabez, for 30 days, and then you'll get blessings and triumph and success. Well, forget this book. It takes 30 days for it to work. I'm about to write a new book called The Promise of Haggai. Where from this day on, you don't have to wait 30 days, from this day on, God will bless you if you just put God first. You see the problem with the book of Haggai for us? Is it this kind of prosperity gospel? Triumphalism. Down in Sydney, uh, we have a, a big uh, movement called Hillsong. I don't know if you've heard about Hillsong from, from here. And here's um, an excerpt from the book that Brian Houston, their leader, has written, coming up on the screen. The book is called, uh, You Need More Money, Discovering God's Amazing Financial Plan for Your Life. Here's what part of what it says. If you're struggling with your health, know that it's the will of God to see you whole and healthy. Health is one of the promises of God for our lives. The pressures of financial burdens, always trying to make ends meet, leaves one feeling contained, helpless, unable to buy your wife a special gift or so to the work of ministry. You need to begin to tap into the power of God that he has given us and to be no longer content to live powerless lives. Next slide, thank you. If you want to live in the perfect will of God, the Bible teaches you how to do it. If you never conceive of or believe for it, it's highly unlikely you ever achieve it. People who say, I could never live in a house like that, probably never will. Now, that part of it, I think, is probably true. Uh, go to the nicest street you know. Uh, some street in Kenny Hill or something like that. Uh, stop at the best house. 
and imagine yourself living there. See, there's the message of the prosperity gospel. We want to say, you know, Houston, uh, Brian, uh, we got a problem, but what are you going to say to Haggai? Haggai, you got a problem? It's, it's the Greek word of God. See, the problem with the, power, the promise of Haggai, that kind of book, that kind of prosperity book, which I'm about to write, uh, the problem is it doesn't take into account Haggai's history. The place that Haggai has in his story, in God's story, as you see in point two. For so far in our very two of the book of Haggai, it sounds very biblical, doesn't it? I've been quoting verses from the Bible here. But it doesn't place you, uh, Haggai, in any part of God's unfolding story. It's as though this could have happened anywhere. It's some kind of timeless truth. Any day is today, you know, today, from today on, I'll bless you. But Haggai was written at a particular time, at a particular place, to a certain group of people. And that is what we need to see, to place it in that context. And so, if you come back with me to chapter 1, verse 1, it is in the second year of Darius. That is when the book is written. Next slide will show us uh, where Haggai fits into this timeline. Sorry, it's a little bit... uh, That that, that one's easier to see there. So 520 BC is when Haggai writes. But that's part of the whole story spanning all the way back to Abraham. And from Abraham onwards, the big theme in the Bible has been the blessings in the Promised Land, as you see in point 2a. It's actually hardwired almost into the thinking of the Israelites. The blessings of the promised land. It's it's their vocabulary of life. It's like when the computers come out now. We talk about, you know, certain things are hardwired and, you know, you download certain things and you say those kind of things even when you're talking about other things that they're not computer stuff. This is part of the language, part of the the atmosphere we breathe. Or the blessings of the promised land is the very language and air of the Israelites. For Abraham was promised a land. And God said, I will be with you. I am with you. I will bless you. And then you remember, 500 years later, in 1300 BC, they come out of the, the slavery, the exodus. And they're going towards the land flowing with milk and honey. There is the blessing. They cross the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh's army all die in the sea. The horses and riders are thrown down. Moses takes them to the edge of the promised land. And this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, coming up on the screen. He is the promise of blessing if they obey God. If you fully obey the Lord your God and care follow all his commands, etc., verse 2, All these blessings will come upon you. What blessings, verse 3? You'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. The crops of your land will bless you. Get livestock, all those kinds of blessings. But, next slide, if you do not obey the Lord, same chapter from Deuteronomy chapter 28, then everything is reversed. All the curses will come. Curse in the city, curse in the country. Your crops will be cursed. You put God first and God will take you into the promised land and give you great blessings. See, for the Old Testament time, heaven was almost pictured in the promised land. That was their heaven. 
And it was all very physical. It was all very material. It's got to do with material blessings that they will get. Now, of course, get this, next slide. By the time they got to Solomon, in the first building of the temple, 1000 BC, there was the height. They had all the blessings. They were in the land. They were in control. But then they disobeyed God, and just as God promised in Deuteronomy, they were exiled in 587. Exiled into Babylon, no longer in their land, away from the promises. But then, some 50 or 60 or so years later, they return from the exile. They come back to the promised land itself. And this is where Haggai kicks in. They come into land, but they do not rebuild God's temple. What's so special about the temple in God's kingdom? The first temple, or Solomon's temple, was significant, not only in terms of the sacrifices, but it was the place where God met his people. It was God, their king, coming to meet them. That was where God ruled his people. So the temple is not just for sacrifices, the temple is also where God rules. It's his parliament house, as it were. And so, when they get thrown into exile, the temple is razed to the ground, is destroyed, signifying that God was punishing the people, signifying that the people no longer were treating God as their king. When they come back, the first thing they were meant to do was to rebuild this temple, to again signify that God was their king, but they didn't build it. They didn't build it. They did not put God and his kingdom and his rule first. And so physically, they had experienced the new exodus. Physically, they had come back from slavery. This time slavery in Babylon, not in Egypt. But they had come back from slavery, back to the promised land. But no rule of God was really set up. And then Haggai gives his promise. You build it, and they'll all be okay. Come with me to chapter 2 and verse 4. Hear the great echoes of God doing the new exodus. Chapter 2 and verse 4. Yeah, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, the God of the exodus. I am with you. Verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I'll shake the heavens and the earth. Remember God shook the, 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 the earth in the Mount Sinai? Remember the giving of the Ten Commandments? There was the first great earthquake, the great shaking. And I'll do it again. Verse 7, I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come in and fill this house with glory. See, this, this new temple, it's nothing, you know, it's got no gold stuff really. It's, it's a, in Australia we call it a dud, right? It doesn't really work. But God says, don't worry, I'll get all the silver, all the gold from all the different nations and it'll come here. Now, that's exactly what happened back in the Exodus, isn't it? Coming off the screen, it's uh, from Exodus chapter 12. Remember in the Exodus, when they came out, God said to the Israelites, ask your, ask, your Israel, ask your Egyptians 
ask the enemies for silver, for gold, and then they plundered the Egyptians. That's going to happen again. But this time, it will come into this new temple. I am with you, God says. Who is this God who is I am with you? Have a look at chapter 2, verse 4. 2 to verse 4, he's the Lord of hosts. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Other translations has the Lord Almighty. The Lord of hosts, you sort of think of angels at Christmas, you know, that kind of thing. But, well, it is that. But angels are not pretty things with little you know, flappy wings and, you know, giving little toys to kids. The Lord of hosts, he's the Lord of the army of God. That's what the host is. It's the army of God. That's what the angels are. They are the army of God. God is the one who has such strength to, to smash the Egyptians and he'll come again and smash your enemies. God says to the Israelites and bring gold into this temple. But more than that, in chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, God is going to raise up a new king. Someone called Zerubbabel. Chapter 2 and verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of nations, to overthrow the chariots and their riders. Remember, reflecting uh, the Exodus again. The horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, and make you like a signet ring. The signet ring is the ring where, where the kings have their, you know, the stamp of authority. You're going to have a king and rule again in God's place. You see, where Haggai fits in this whole great story is that it throws all those promises. Abraham's promise of blessing. Uh, the promise of a new temple when God will once again rule over the temple. Uh, the promise of a king. Now, it's all thrown again into the future. Haggai puts into the future these great promises of God. And so you see the three promises coming up on the screen. The king, Zerubbabel. The glorious temple. The blessings of the promised land. But it's all caught up in this shaking, this new exodus that will come. And so we wait, and we wait. But friends, in the Old Testament, it never really came. Never really came. Until, until there was a man born in the line of Zerubbabel. Come up on the screen is Matthew chapter 1. A man whose father was Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and I won't keep following, but all you see down to verse 16 is in the line of Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. There's no real indication that Zerubbabel in himself really became a king. It's put off until Jesus actually comes. He is the king that Haggai spoke of. But more than that, he is the temple. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 2, John chapter 2. The Jews demand, what miraculous sign are you going to do to show your authority? Jesus says, I'm going to destroy this temple, pointing to the, uh, another attempt to rebuild the temple. 
I'll, I'll destroy it and raise it again in three days. But he wasn't talking about the physical building, he was talking about his own body. So he's talking about how he's going to die and then three days come back to life. Jesus is that temple. And a glorious temple at that. For you see in John chapter 12, the next slide, as the John's Gospel goes on, he says, the hour's about to come for me, for the Son of Man, to be glorified. When is that going to happen? The next verse 32 there, when I'm lifted up, when I'm glorified. But how's Jesus lifted up? Verse 33, when he dies on the cross. See, what is the very glory of the temple? We see it in the glory of Jesus. For Jesus is where God comes to rule and meet his people. And God comes to rule and meet his people when Jesus is on the cross. There's where you see all the glory of God. How can that be? How can the death of Jesus be, be glorious? Well, John Scott because the death of Jesus is good. There's the glory of God in Jesus. The grace of God. The glory of God. How that's why we call it Good Friday, isn't it? I mean, what's so good about Good Friday? This guy dying on the cross, being killed, being murdered. But it's good because it's grace towards us. In Australia, we have a, an Olympic hero called Stephen Bradbury. He's an Olympic hero, not in swimming or anything like that, but an Olympic hero in the Winter Olympics. You think, how does Australia ever get a hero in Winter Olympics? You know, we're not like Canada or America. You know, we're down there with there's sun and surf and there's no snow, really. But he was an Olympic winner in ice skating. Now, where they go really, really fast, it's speed skating, they call it, isn't it? How does an Australian win that? Well, it's because, I think it's the 2002 Winter Olympics, he got the gold medal because he was in the final, whatever, eight people, and he was sort of coming last, final five, I think, and coming last, and on the last turn, all the people before him, one fell on top of the other, and there's a big mess, and he just sort of went past them, and before he knew it, he crossed the line first, you see. Now, when he got his Olympic medal over his head, now, most countries, you know, they're really proud, you know, yes, look at us. When they put the medal on Stephen Bradbury, he got the medal and then he went. Fucking I did, really. Especially because the only reason why he got into the finals was because in the previous um, heat, exactly the same thing happened, you see. See, that was grace for him. He didn't deserve it. Friends, when we get to heaven, when we get that great glory, of being forgiven. You say, it's nothing we did at all to deserve it. It is what Jesus has done. There's the glory in the temple. And Jesus is also therefore making us his temple. And so in the reading from Ephesians 2 coming up again, as Jesus is the temple, as Jesus is the cornerstone, so we too, as, as the people of God, as the church, as, as smack, as... We are growing up into the very temple of God. But friends, this will happen fully only in the future. 
The blessings of the promised land only happen in the future. The glory of us as the people of God will only be fully seen in the future. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, a very famous passage coming up on the screen, where the Hebrew writer argues, look, if Joshua, I like this one, if Joshua had given the people of God the rest in the promised land, you know, after Moses, if he had given the promised land rest, then David, later on, would not have promised another rest. But the fact that David said, look, there's another rest later, means that Joshua didn't really bring them into the real rest. Well, what's the real rest? The real rest, according to Hebrews, is actually heaven itself. And so, verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following the example of disobedience. Friends, it's in the future. That's when the the blessings will really come. And it will come at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, coming up on the screen, it will come when there's that final shaking. Remember the shaking? The Hebrew writer actually quotes from Haggai. He says, at that time, looking back at the Exodus, at Moses at Mount Sinai, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Promised through the prophet Haggai, you see. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, the word once more indicates the removal of the things that can be shaken. That is, the created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Looking forward, friends, to the destruction of this world. Where all that you can see, all the material stuff, all we put our efforts and achievements into, all the things of, of this world will disappear. But we who are Christians have a kingdom that will last forever. Well, friends, that is the message, the promise of Haggai. Let me just tie up the loose ends then. You see, it is about triumph and blessing and prosperity and and winning with Christ, but it is not yet. Not yet. Once you see where Haggai fits, and how it points to Jesus, and how it points to the future, the second coming of Jesus, we see that those with the prosperity gospel, like Brian Houston, or the prayer of Jabez, they only got it half right. They do have it half right. That is, their desire for that which is blessing, that which is good, that it's a right desire. But, they're half wrong because their timetable is wrong. They're expecting it too early. They're expecting it this side of the second coming of Jesus, which Haggai, when interpreted through Hebrews, would never expect. For the book of Hebrews also will go on and speak about how, yes, if you put God first, you will be blessed, but only in heaven. Whereas in this life, remember the Hebrews chapter 10, what happens? You get your property confiscated. You get put in jail. But never mind. Because you've got better possessions in heaven. The book of Hebrews is the one who argues, in this life you might have suffering. But that comes at the very discipline, the loving Father who looks after us, disciplining us. For the sake of our righteousness in the future. See, friends, there is no shortcut that goes around 
suffering now. We are those who suffer now as Christians, looking forward to the blessings to come after the second coming. So friends, those who preach that kind of prosperity gospel, you know, from this day on you'll get blessed. They're giving false advertising. False advertising. Which in the end will not deliver. Well then, what is then the message of Haggai for us? Two points. Firstly, there's the challenge of Haggai chapter 1 verse 4. See, the genuine Jew of Haggai's day experiencing the great salvation out of the slavery to Babylon, experiencing the new exodus as it were, they should have built God's temple first. And we as genuine Christians today experiencing the great rescue out of our slavery to sin and death and hell, we should put first God and his kingdom. And so God's probing words are for us today in chapter 1 verse 4 there. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? So easy, isn't it? So easy. In our lives to... Put our house first rather than the house of the Lord. So easy as in chapter 1 verse 9 to be busy, busy, busy with our own house. That's what a lot of life is like, isn't it? That's our sort of five, ten year plan, isn't it? We want to get promoted, do well in the career, get some savings, get a deposit down perhaps, and earn enough monthly income in order to be enslaved to a mortgage. We want to own our own home. Christians, what is the thing that drives you? What is good? What is the, the good thing that you really want? Now, nothing necessarily wrong with owning your own home, but what is it that, that, that makes you live, that gets you excited? Why is it that we rush, rush, rush 24-7? To build the house of God, build the people of God, build my Bible study group? Or is it to build our own house? Sometimes when the students back in Australia, when um, yeah, they get asked, now, why don't you spend a bit more time and, and help, help this Christian in his uh, difficulty or, or build up this young Christian or, or take the gospel to your friends or... So, uh, it's just too busy for it. I got exams and then this and that, and and it's easy sometimes as they go back home to be too tired to come to Bible study, or they come to Bible study half dead, and they just want people to support them and to be nice to them and to look after them. They don't mind doing you know, a bit of church stuff once off, but that's don't ask them to do anything too regular. But at work, if the company says, oh, look, do you want to go overseas? You know, go away from Singapore, get some wider experience. Go away from Malaysia, get some wider experience. 
You know Belonger House. You want the responsibility, don't you? You see the difference? It still costs, but one you jump at and the other we want to get away from. We feel really good when the company gives us a laptop. But you know, friends, the laptop is just a boy chain, isn't it? And make sure that you work, work, even when you get home. Basically, the reason why it's a laptop is so that you can use it in the toilet as well. See, friends, where are we putting our time? we all got the same amount of time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But where are we putting our time? Or maybe for some of us it's our panelled houses, the luxury. We love the fellowship, the encouragement of our weekly worship at the mega mall. Or down in Singapore to go to the temple of Isatan, Isatan, um, to the relaxing, refreshing, energising power of the purchase. Or we spend time on the web, in the internet pornography, of looking after image after image of another handbag or another iPod or another new camera as we lust for more. What is it that we spend our time on? And what do we want for our, our little ones? Do we really want for them to beat the other kids in class? Or do we want them to bring the other kids in class to know Christ as well? And it's not just my hours now, but what about, not just my five-year plan or ten-year plan, what about my 80-year plan? What about my whole life? What is that about? Some friends uh, back in Australia, we, uh, especially as they go to university, and especially those who have the gifts of, of doing full-time ministry, they can you know, good with people, talk, talk the Bible with people, and we challenge them, well, what about for you, why not do full-time ministry? And usually the um, response comes, oh, well, how about I, um, I'll put a lot of other people in full-time ministry. I'll get a good job and then support a lot of people in the mission, you see. Well, I started to know uh, how to answer those people and the answer I uh, now give to people is, well, okay, if you really want to give money to to people in full-time ministry, how about you work out what an average pastor earns and then you live on that and everything above that you give to mission. That's really why you want to do it. So I spoke to a man and then he said, well, how much do do, do, uh, ministers earn? And I told him, you know, in Sydney, they earn this much. In Malaysia, they earn a bit less. Um, and then he worked out the sums. So, okay, you want me to live on this and then give everything else away? Well, I might as well do full-time ministry then. You see, for him, it was the panelled houses that was really keeping him back. Friends, what is it for us? It's worth stopping and thinking about our lives. Don't wait for the heart attack when you you get to 50 to, oh, what's life about? Your young years, they're your best years. People say to me, look, I I, I buy a house, I get my career and I get my kids through overseas education first, then I'll do full-time ministry. And they even say to me, look, Moses, 
God didn't call Moses into ministry until he was 80. Friends, don't give God the leftover of your time or of your life. But what if there are some people, as I know there's many people here, who are putting God first, faithfully working at your jobs, but giving lots of other time in order to build God's temple, build the church, build God's people, build for what lasts. You're only working to get food on the table, but your life, what you get excited about is is Sunday school teaching or whatever. And yet, at times, you pull your, your time and effort into ministering God's word to people, and sometimes it just doesn't look like much. Sometimes it says in Haggai chapter 2 verse 3, does it look like nothing to you? You put effort into it. You put effort into meeting someone and they SMS you in the last minute and say, oh, I can't come, I've got something else on. You put all this effort into something they don't even appreciate what you're doing. And even sometimes your family say, you're crazy for spending so much time doing all that Church stuff, Christian stuff. Does it sometimes seem like a nothing? Well, friends, there's no guarantee that the efforts we put into ministry, where we are, may flourish. It may. It's great to see how SMAC has flourished over the last five years. But at times it gets hard, doesn't it? But, on the last day, whether or not our bit of the ministry had had grown or not, we have been those who are on God's team, who has grown God's church. And we will be those who would see the glorious church in all its perfection. Now you put effort into people and sometimes they don't want to repent, they don't want you to talk Jesus with them. They got, you got the sin, they try, you're trying to change in them and they say, you talk to me about that sin again, I don't want to talk to you again. But in the future, we'll see the glorious church. Friends, what are we putting out? Just this last week, and I'll finish with this story, my girls who are 13 years old, they spent hours over the last term at school practicing some kind of a school, wasn't quite a dance, a sort of a presentation, a sort of Modern art kind of, you know. Anyway, they spent every lunch hour, four lunch hours out of five each week, for seven weeks, practicing, practicing. And it was an inter-house competition. There were five houses in the school. And then they did this great display. And it just so happened that the house that my girls were in, they won it. Uh, they hadn't won it since 1990, and the other time before that was 1948, their house won it. <laughs> So they were really happy. They were jubilant. I talked to my Steffi that night and said, we were so happy when they announced that the other team came second and we all jumped up because we knew we had come first. Because we had put so much effort into it. Four hours times seven weeks. What's that, Daddy? That's 28 hours. But it was all worth it. Friends, what are we putting our energy into, our time into? 
into things which, when the second coming comes, is going to disappear like a sandcastle on the beach or into the kingdom that will last forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that we might be those who put first your kingdom. Please, Father, forgive us for building our own little houses, our own little careers, our own little kingdoms. Forgive us for wanting the panelled houses and the luxury and the comfort. And, Father, we ask that we might be those who see your world, your life that you have given us, your way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.